Well, after you put your songbook away this morning, if you have your Bible with you, please check it out and go to familiar territory for you. And that's the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 4, please. Please go in your Bible to Genesis 4, and I promise you, in a few minutes, we're going to read some verses out of Genesis 4. It's good to see all of you once again. Certainly, it's good to be together, to have a great day of worship to the Lord. So thankful to have visitors who are with us here this morning. Many of you know that my grandfather, my grandfather who helped raise me back in East Texas, he died last year. He actually died in March of last year, and one of the many vivid memories that I have of our time together were the numerous religious conversations that we would have. You see, during the time that I was blessed to live in his house, my grandfather and I would have numerous religious conversations, and let me just tell you that for the most part, we did not see eye to eye on most of those conversations. We did not see eye to eye on most religious matters. For example, we could never see eye to eye on important issues like salvation. My grandfather believed that a person could be saved by just believing in Jesus and saying a prayer. But I believe that Jesus makes it very clear in the Bible that if a person wants to be saved, they must believe in him and repent of their sins and, and be baptized. My grandfather and I could never see eye to eye on the most important issue in, in all the Bible, and that's the issue of salvation. We also could never see eye to eye on what a preacher should be called or whether or not it's okay for a woman to be a preacher or what's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we especially, we especially could never see eye to eye when it comes to music and worship. You see, when it comes to music and worship, I believe that God has specified exactly what he wants. I believe that God has specified all throughout the New Testament that he wants singing. He wants his people to sing spiritual songs. He wants his people to come together as an assembly, as a congregation, and do exactly what we've been doing for the last few minutes. I believe that God has specified singing throughout the New Testament, but my grandfather, my grandfather believed that God is okay with people singing and, and playing instruments. My grandfather was actually a big advocate of instrumental music being used in worship to God. In fact, one of the th main things that he would tell me quite often in our discussions together is he would often tell me he would try to justify his belief by saying, well, Sean, God doesn't say it's wrong. Sean, God doesn't say it is a sin. I mean, sure, God may not have specifically commanded us to do this throughout the new covenant, but he also doesn't say thou shalt not do it. He also doesn't say thou shalt not play a guitar or a piano or an organ or, or a drum. God doesn't say it's wrong, and so that, that means it's okay. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've heard him say those kinds of things, and, and he's not the only one. I can also remember being in high school and, and how when many of my friends found out that I was a member of the Church of Christ, one of the first things they would say to me is they would say, Sean, you are part of that church 
that doesn't believe in music. You ever heard someone say that before? They would say, Sean, you're part of that church that doesn't believe in using instrumental music. How in the world could you be part of a church like that? How in the world could you be part of a church that believes that? How can you be part of a church that doesn't let people use their talent to play instruments and worship to God? How could you be part of a church that believes that? The Bible doesn't say it's wrong. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not use an instrument of worship or instrument of music and worship to God. God, he actually leaves it up to us to decide what we want to do with that. You ever heard someone say that kind of stuff before? You ever heard people in the religious world make that kind of argument? I want to suggest that that kind of thinking, it's very popular in, in the religious world today. It's very popular in the world as a whole today. In fact, in some churches of Christ, many folks see the silence of God as permissive and an open invitation to do whatever we want to do, the question is, is are they right? Do, do they have a point? I mean, what exactly are we to do when God says nothing about a matter? What exactly are we to do when God is, is silent about a matter? I mean, does the silence of God about a matter then give us permission to do Whatever we want to do, if you don't mind in this study, I want to talk with you about that this morning. If you don't mind, as we continue in our series where we're trying to equip ourselves to have good Bible answers to the Bible questions that we receive this morning, I want to talk with you. I want to talk with you about God's silence. I want to talk with you about how we are to properly treat the silence of God. In fact, there are at least three things, at least three things that I want to point out and I want to help us understand when it comes to properly responding to the silence of God. And the first thing is this. The first thing I want us to understand is when it comes to the things that God has given us in his book, which is the Bible. When it comes to his commandments, when it comes to his instructions, when it comes to the things that he has clearly told us to do, God demands careful and strict obedience to those things. God demands careful and strict obedience to the things that he has told us in his word. I want to begin there this morning, brothers and sisters, because for, for the vast majority of religious folks, they don't get this. They don't understand this. They have the wrong idea about God. You see, sadly, for so many people, you know how they see God? They see God as kind of soft. They see God as the big grandpa who just can't say no. They see God as someone who is just so in love with them, and he's just so infatuated with them that he'll just put up with them doing anything they want to do. He'll just accept anything they want to give him in their service and in their worship. They fail to understand that that God they're talking about, that God they created in their own minds, well, that God doesn't exist. 
That God is not real. That God is not legitimate. That is not the God that you read about in the Bible. You see, when it comes to the God of the Bible, which is the one true and living God, we need to understand that that God has always demanded careful and strict obedience. That God has always demanded allegiance. That God has always demanded devotion and dedication and complete submission. I mean, isn't that exactly what we've been learning throughout the book of Genesis for the last few weeks? Isn't that exactly what we learned about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Isn't that exactly what we learned about Noah in the flood and, and Lot when he was fleeing the city of, of Sodom and in the case of the people building the Tower of Babel and even in the case of Adam and Eve's two sons, Abel and, and Cain? Are you in Genesis chapter 4? Let's look at some scriptures here this morning in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse number 3, the Bible says, So it came about in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, I understand. Let me just say this. I understand. And so often when we read this text, as Bible students, we like to spend most of our time focusing on, on what the Bible doesn't say here instead of focusing on what the Bible does say. So often when we read this text, due to our curiosity as human beings, we like to spend our time focusing on what exactly did Cain do to mess up so bad? Well, why exactly did God accept Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's? Why is God so unhappy with Cain? Why is God so displeased with the offering that he gave him on this occasion? I understand that so often when we read this text, we like to spend about 35 minutes talking about all those kinds of things. But let's not get so bogged down on that this morning that we miss the point. Let's not get so bogged down talking about what the Bible doesn't tell us that we fail to appreciate what the Bible does tell us. Let's not get so bogged down that we fail to understand that regardless of whatever opinion we may offer this morning as to why God accepted Abel's offering but not Cain's, the point is whatever Cain did offer God on this occasion, it wasn't right. It wasn't pleasing to God. It wasn't something that brought God glory. It didn't fall in line with what God had commanded him to do. Now, that is something that is clear based on what the text says. The text makes it very clear that God demanded strict and careful obedience from Cain, and he also demanded this from the Israelites. I'm going in my Bible to Deuteronomy. There's a great passage in Deuteronomy 29, that I want to show you, if you don't mind, please. In Deuteronomy 29, and in verse number 29, this is a familiar verse to us in the Bible. It says, the secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And let's just stop right there. You know, so often when we read this verse, we go to this verse and we just read the first half of it. We go to this verse and we say, well, you see there, the secret things belong to God. There are certain things that God hasn't told us because he doesn't want us to know. There are certain things that he keeps to himself. We don't know everything that God does. So often we go to this passage and all we consider is the first part 
when it says the secret things belong to God. And that's certainly a great point to make. But I want you to notice that there's more that this verse has to say. The verse goes on to say this, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us, the things that we know, the things that we have in the word of God, those things belong to us and to our sons that we may observe, that we may observe all, notice, all the words of this law. Notice how, while it is true that there are some things that God has not told us, according to this verse, the things that God has told us, the things that we do have, the things that we can clearly read in our Bibles, those things are there for a reason. Those things are there for us to obey. Those things are there for us to do. Those things are there for us to submit to fully in our lives. That is what Moses wanted the children of Israel to understand. And then notice what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. We go to Joshua chapter 1, and before this new generation of Israelites has finally taken on the task of going out and conquering the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, God wanted Joshua and the people to understand something. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7, God says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to what? All. Notice that. According to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all notice, all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Notice how God wanted his people to understand that if you're going to be successful, if you're going to learn from the mistakes of your ancestors who died in the wilderness, if you're going to finally receive this promise to receive the land of Canaan, then you have to obey me. you got to do what I say. you got to make sure that you do all that I have told you to do. God demanded strict and careful obedience from the people of Israel. And God also demands this from disciples. He demands this from, from people like the vast majority of, of folks in the room this morning. Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 8, please. In John chapter 8 and verse number 31, we find the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John 8 and verse 31, Jesus is speaking to disciples. He's speaking to people who believe in him. And he says in John 8 and verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews, who have believed in him, if you continue in my word, notice, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Notice how Jesus says that part of being a disciple requires obedience, careful submission, continuing in his words. The apostle Paul would make this point in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, Paul says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that in us you may learn, notice, not to exceed, not to go beyond what is written so that none of you will become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. We go on to 2 John 9 and John gives a similar admonition when he says anyone who goes too far 
and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, the one that stays in the teaching, the one that, that limits themselves to just what the Lord has said, he has both the Father and the Son. He has a relationship with the Father and the Son. And then remember how the book of Revelation ended. Remember, we find this principle at the end of Revelation when the Bible closes by saying, if anyone asks to them, if anyone asks to the word of God, to the book of Revelation, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words or the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, holy city which are written in this book. There are so many other passages I could show you this morning, but, I, but you're smart enough, you're intelligent enough, you, you see the point. You, you see the point I'm trying to make. You see that contrary to what a lot of folks believe today, we do not serve a God who has put us on this earth and left us to our own devices. We do not serve a God who has left it up to us to decide how we're going to live and how we're going to serve him and how we're going to worship him. We do not serve a God who has left it up to us to decide on what we're going to do in his church. Instead, we serve a God that demands strict and careful obedience. Instead, we serve a God who demands that we study carefully what he has said, that we understand what he has said, and that we just do exactly what he has said. If we're gonna understand this issue properly, then we gotta start with this right here. We gotta start by understanding that God demands strict and careful obedience. God demands that we study what he has said and make sure we just do what he has said. And when it comes to the stuff that he has not said, when it comes to his silence, then the second thing we need to point out is his silence is not permissive. His silence is not permissive. Instead, it is restrictive. This is another one of those common and basic forms of communication like we talked about this morning. This is one of those common and basic rules of communication that we use every single day. We, we all understand this principle. In fact, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that our young people understand this principle. I guarantee you that my two small children, they understand this principle. These young people over here understand this principle. Abby understands it. Nathan and Shannon, they understand it. The Amalong children understand it. Drew and Brenna, they understand this. For example, think about this. Imagine Austin, Drew's daddy. He one day decides to, he's like me, he hates going in Walmart, so he decides to, he decides to send Drew Walmart for him. He sends Drew in the Walmart and he says, Drew, I want you to get a few items. I want you to go in there. I want you to get some hamburger meat. I want you to get some buns, some cheese, some ketchup and mustard. We're going to grill today. I want you to go get some hamburger meat, buns, cheese, ketchup, mustard. And since Austin doesn't have any cash on him, he gives Drew his credit card. He gives him his Visa or his MasterCard. And he says, you go in there and you get those items. And Drew goes in there and he's in there for about 35 minutes. And after he comes out, not only does he have the items that Austin 
requested. Not only does he have that hamburger meat and that cheese and those buns and that ketchup and that mustard, but he also has bought a brand new $500 PlayStation 5. And he's bought two $70 video games to go along with it. And he also decided to get himself a brand new $800 iPad. Now, if Drew, if Drew came back with that kind of receipt, how do you think his daddy's going to feel about that? How do you think his daddy's going to feel when he notices all these expensive items have been charged to his credit card? How do you think his daddy's going to respond when he asks his son, hey, son, why did you charge all these things to my credit card? And his son says, well, daddy, you didn't tell me I couldn't buy these things. Daddy, you didn't tell me I couldn't buy a PlayStation 5 and two video games and a brand new iPad. Do you think that response is going to fly with Austin? Do you think Austin's going to say, well, you know what, son, you're right. I didn't tell you everything not to get in Walmart. I didn't go through a whole list of 10,000 things for you to not get in Walmart, so it's okay what you did. It's okay that you charged an additional $1,500 to my credit card. You think Austin's going to say that to Drew? You know he's not. And neither would his father-in-law, Rick, if... Rick went to the dentist very soon. Imagine this. Imagine Rick goes to the dentist. He goes to the dentist to get two deep cavities repaired in his back teeth. And maybe the dentist gives him some, some kind of gas or something. It kind of puts him under a little bit. And when he wakes up, he looks into the mirror and he notices that the two cavities have been, have been repaired, but the dentist also took out his two front teeth. The cavities are repaired, but his two front teeth are gone. And so he says to the dentist, sir, why in the world did you take out my two front teeth? I didn't ask you to do that. And the dentist says, well, I did that, but because you didn't tell me I couldn't. You didn't tell me I, I couldn't pull out your two front teeth, and I didn't like the way it looked anyway, so I took it upon myself to take them out. And by the way, here's the bill. You think Rick is going to go with that? Would you go with that? Imagine you drop your car off at a, repair, at a repair place here in the valley. You drop your car off to get your carburetor fixed, and a couple of hours go by, a few hours go by, and you go back and you pick up your car, and you've noticed they fixed your carburetor. They got your carburetor in tip-top shape, but they also put in your car a brand-new engine and some brand-new tires with brand-new rims, and they also replaced your brakes. You then ask them, why in the world did you do these other things to my car? And they turn around and say, well, you didn't tell us we couldn't do these things. You didn't tell us we couldn't replace your engine and put on brand-new tires and repair your brakes and give you brand-new rims, and so we took it upon ourselves to do it anyway. And by the way, here's the bill for all these things we've done today. Are you going to go with that? You're going to pay that bill? You know you wouldn't pay that bill. You know you wouldn't be happy with that kind of response at all. You wouldn't be happy with that because you understand a basic form of communication. You understand that silence in communication is not permissive. Instead, it is restrictive. 
It is very restrictive. It does not grant us the authority to do whatever we want to do. We all understand that when it comes to our everyday interactions and our everyday conversations. But for some reason, when it comes to God and his word, our brains want to fall out. For some reason, when it comes to God and his word, for most religious folks, they don't apply the same principle. They don't apply the same rules. They want God to give you a bunch of thou shalt not, even though the book of Leviticus is the most neglected book in all the Bible. They want a bunch of thou shalt nots. They want God to tell you everything he wants you to do and everything he doesn't want you to do. Let me tell you something, my friends. If we had a Bible that had all that in it, we couldn't fit it in this church building. We certainly couldn't fit it in this auditorium right now. It is ridiculous, just plain ridiculous to view God's silence about a matter as permissive. In fact, the Hebrew writer makes that very point in Hebrews chapter 7. Let me give you some Bible here. When you go in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 14, please. As you turn to Hebrews 7 and in verse 14, let me set up the context for what's going on there in that verse. You see, in the context of that verse, the Hebrew writer is talking about what Lance talked about this morning. He's talking about priesthood. Particularly here, he's talking about the priesthood of Jesus. He's talking about how under the new covenant, there had to be a change in the priesthood because under the old covenant, Jesus cannot be a priest because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus couldn't be a priest under the old covenant because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. And so the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7 and verse 14, for it is evident it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing. Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Do you see the argument the Hebrew writer is making there? Do you see how in that verse the Hebrew writer is appealing to the silence of God? He says that when it came to that old covenant law that was given to the nation of Israel, God said nothing about priests coming from the tribe of Judah. God never said thou shalt not have a priest come from Judah. He never said thou shalt not have a priest come from Naphtali and Asher and Gad and Manasseh. God never specifically said there would be a sin for priests to come from those tribes. God never specifically said it would be a sin for the priests to come from the other tribes. But even though God never specifically said that, the point that the Hebrew writer is making here is the specifics that the priests were to come from the tribe of Levi that excluded Jesus and anyone else from the other tribes becoming priests. In other words, God's silence on this matter was not permissive. God not saying thou shalt not have a priest come from Judah. That was not permissive. That was not an open invitation for the children of Israel to say, well, you know what? It must be OK for us to have a priest come from Reuben and Gad and Naphtali and Judah, because God never said specifically that it was wrong. You see, the Hebrew writer clearly understood he understood that God's silence about a matter is not permissive. Instead, it is restrictive. The question is, do we understand the same thing that he understood? 
Do we understand the same thing that the Hebrew writer understood? Do we understand the same thing that the children of Israel understood? I want to submit that if we don't understand this principle when it comes to God and his word, then any and everything we want to do in religion is fair game. It's all fair game. Having women serve as elders, that's fair game. You know why? Because God never said, thou shalt not have a woman serve as an elder. God never said that thou shalt not have a guitar or an organ or a piano when you worship him under the new covenant. God never said thou shalt not take the Lord's Supper on Friday or Saturday or Monday or Tuesday. God never said thou shalt not have Chili's hamburgers and Pepsi Coke or, or Sprite as elements for the Lord's Supper. God never said thou shalt not sprinkle babies or pour water on people's heads and say that's good enough. You see, there's a huge can of worms that we open up when we fail to apply this basic principle of communication to the Bible. And so how about we do this? How about instead of focusing on what God has not said, how about we just make sure we focus on what God has said and let's just do it? How about that? Is that a bright idea to you? Let's just focus on what God has said and let's just do it. After all, isn't that what the main goal should be? Isn't that what the main focus should be? Isn't that what our main desire should be as disciples of Jesus Christ? Shouldn't our main desire as disciples be all about pleasing Jesus and not ourselves? That's what Brother Chad read for us this morning in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 9, the Bible says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will, watch this now, walk. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice what being a disciple is all about. Being a disciple is about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Being a disciple is about pleasing God in all respects. Being a disciple is all about bearing fruit and every good work. That is what a disciple should be all about, not just doing whatever we want to do. Paul makes this same point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. A disciple is about staying within the authority of Jesus. It's about walking right. It's about pleasing the Lord. It's about excelling still more. Try to do better every single day according to God's word. And then back to the Hebrew writer, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. The Hebrew writer says, Now the peace of God, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, that's what being a disciple is all about. 
That's what being a Christian is all about. That is the mindset that we always got to bring with us when we approach the sacred scriptures. When we approach the sacred text, when we approach the word of God, like Austin, when he sends Drew into Walmart to get some items, and like Rick, when he goes to the dentist and like you, whenever you drop your vehicle off at a repair shop here in the valley, we need to understand that God is also intelligent enough and he is wise enough and he is smart enough and he's capable enough to tell us exactly what he wants. He is able to tell us what he wants. He doesn't need us to think for him. He doesn't need us to speak for him. He doesn't need us to fill in any missing gaps that we think are found in the scriptures. God knows what he wants. And he's told us what he wants. He's told us what he wants when it comes to having elders in the church. You see, while there is no passage that says, thou shalt not have a woman serve as an elder, God has told us what he wants when it comes to this. God has told us in 1 Timothy 3 that he wants men serving in this capacity. In fact, more specifically, he wants spiritually mature men, men who have met the qualifications that he's laid down here in the scriptures. God has specified, he has told us what he wants when it comes to elders. And he's also told us what he wants when it comes to the Lord's Supper. While God doesn't say thou shalt not take it on Friday night or Saturday night or Monday night, while God has not said thou shalt not have Pepsi and Sprite and Chili's hamburgers and the Lord's Supper, while God hasn't said it's a sin to do those things, he has told us what he wants. He has told us in the Bible not to go beyond what he has said. He has said that he wants unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. He has said that he wants us to partake of it on the first day of the week. God has specified what he wants when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and he also has specified what he wants when it comes to baptism. While there is no passage that says, thou shalt not baptize a baby or sprinkle a baby, the scripture has told us who to baptize. The scripture has told us who to immerse throughout the Bible. God tells us that we are to baptize people who are able to believe the gospel, Mark 16, 16, and who are able to repent of sins, Acts 2, 38, and who are able to confess Jesus as the Lord and the Christ, Romans 10 and verse number 9. Babies can't do any of these prerequisites for Bible baptism. In fact, babies don't even need to do any of these prerequisites for Bible baptism because they have no sins on them. Baptism is for sinners. It's not for people who are already on their way to heaven like little babies. God has told us what he wants when it comes to baptism and when it comes to music and worship. While there is no such commandment that says in the New Testament, thou shalt not have a guitar or a drum or a piano. God has told us what he wants when it comes to this. God has told us that he wants us to sing. He wants us to sing spiritual songs. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, we find one of nine passages in the New Testament 
where God has made this loud and clear. In Colossians 3 and in verse number 16, Colossians chapter 3 and in verse number 16, as the Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Colossae, he told them, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now notice how this ties perfectly with what we talked about this morning. Notice how here in, in this passage, we see that while God has specified singing and spiritual songs, he does give us the liberty to decide a few things ourselves. He does give us the wiggle room to decide a few things ourselves. For example, he doesn't tell us how many songs to sing in a worship assembly. We could sing four, like we've done this morning. We could sing 10. We could sing 20. We could sing 30. God leaves it up to us to decide that. God doesn't tell us exactly how many songs to sing. He also doesn't tell us where to, where to incorporate them in the service. He also doesn't tell us which kinds of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to sing. God hasn't specified those kinds of things in the scriptures, but just because he doesn't specify everything, that doesn't mean he hadn't specified anything. That doesn't mean that we can now bring an organ up here and a guitar and a drum set and a piano and expect God to ex accept that. No, sir, and no, ma'am. No, sir, and no, ma'am. When it comes to music and worship, God has specified singing. God has told us what he wants and he knows what he wants. And instead of arrogantly presuming for him, instead of arrogantly thinking that we know what sounds better and we know what he wants and we know what's going to fill the pews, instead of arrogantly thinking those kinds of things, you know what we need to do? We need to just focus on pleasing him. We need to just focus on glorifying him. We need to just focus on studying his word, understanding his word, and doing exactly what he has told us to do. If God wanted women to be elders, and if God wanted pizza and hamburgers and Pepsi and Coke on the Lord's Supper, and if God wanted us to baptize some babies, and if God wanted us to sing and play an instrument, guess what? He would have told us. He would have told us in his word, we serve a God who is fully capable of telling us exactly what he wants. The question is, will we give him what he wants? Will we respect him? Will we honor him? Will we avoid thinking for him and speaking for him? I submit that if we just do that, if we just stick with what God has said, we're going to be fine. We're going to be blessed. We're going to be able to live our lives with absolute certainty that we are doing exactly what he wants us to do. That is my lesson when it comes to how we should respond to the silence of God. And maybe there's someone here this morning you say that I have not responded to God properly. I have not been doing the things that God has clearly told me to do, specifically, I have not been doing what God has told me to do in regards to my salvation. I have not believed in Jesus, and I have not repented of my sins, and I have not been baptized. 
for the remission of my sins. If that's something that you need to do this morning, then I want you to know the water is ready. We're ready, and God and his angels are ready. If you're willing to obey God's commandments in regards to this, he will keep his promise to wash away your sins and bring you into his kingdom. Or if there's a Christian here this morning who's living in sin, you're not living right, if you're willing to respond to God's direct statement to confess your sin and to ask him to forgive you, if you're willing to do that today, then God will certainly keep his promise to you as well. If there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel, don't delay. Come forward. Let's stand. Let's sing.